Welcome back to the What's Up and What's Next podcast, the greatest podcast of all times. And today I am joined by a friend of mine and also a colleague, Jamie Lightwing, a lead developer from Fluid. Welcome, Jamie. Hello. How, How are you doing? been? Pretty good. Um, just um, enjoying perks of working from home at the moment. So lots of coffee, <laughs> lots of sitting, not much else. That's good. Good stuff. Um, it's an absolute privilege to have you here today. For many people who may not know you, uh, like I do, it's been about two years since we've known each other and we've actually met on my first day of my placement year with Fluid. So it's been quite a while now. And I remember this so clearly because you were the one who done our induction. So you actually trained me up. And throughout my placement year, you also made sure that you were there as a support and as a mentor. So it's actually really, really great that we can have you here today to talk about different topics around digital transformation, technology and cloud. So I'm really, really excited and looking forward to it. I'd like to start off by understanding that companies that have systems have to build it in a certain way and there are different layers to it. There is the application layer, the data layer, and the infrastructure layer. Could you briefly define those layers, please? Um, yes, I suppose it depends specifically on what the system is actually doing. So if we take like a, just a standard web service as an example, that's, kind of, that's an easy one to talk about. So in that case, um, the user would probably call a URL and they'd get some data back from an endpoint something like that in order for that to work that data has got to come from somewhere and that would be the database layer and there's various different technologies underneath um, and it depends really on what your use case is as to which one's best that data is going to come up from that database layer and usually it's not going to be in a format that the user can use directly and um, so it needs a bit of processing that would be the application layer um, and the infrastructure is I suppose what you traditionally see as is the hardware that that system sits on and also the middleware. Um, so there's kind of a lot of different terms there. Um, so middleware is an interesting term, actually, because you have like the, the server itself, which hosts uh, the application. But then the middleware would be something like an application server. That's like it's the bridge between the hardware and the actual service itself. Yeah. Oh. So it's the whole the whole stack is important because if you take away any of those layers, then there's likely going to be something missing and your application won't work. If we were to use an analogy to describe the layers and I guess use the house as an example, what, how would you translate those three layers to an example of a house? Uh, that's quite a, that's an interesting <laughs> question. So I, personally would say the house itself would be the infrastructure, maybe the foundations. I know a lot of people would probably say just like the foundations, but the house itself, because people live in houses, don't they? Mm -hmm. Then I suppose the person in the house could probably be the application layer in the middle because they're going around and they're doing things. But then there's lots of objects as well, isn't there? So like you're cooking some food, you've got pots, pans and things. That might be the data. So they all live inside the house um, and the person's using the equipment to do things. So I don't know if that's a, 
<laughs> good analogy. No, it, it was great. It was, it was perfect. And um, something really interesting these days is the term uh, digital transformation. Now, digital transformation refers to the use of new, fast, efficient, and frequently changing digital technology to solve problems within a company, to improve business processes, to improve technological processes. I'm really curious to know more about cloud, because cloud is an example of a process or, I guess, a tool that companies use to perform some sort of digital transformation across their company. What is cloud in your opinion? And bear in mind, people that may have a non-technical background would see cloud usually as just a memory storage, a place where they can store their files and documents. But we know that cloud is much more than that. So what is cloud, Jamie? So what is cloud? Um, I think to probably answer that, it's probably worth saying what is more traditional, and then it becomes quite obvious what cloud is. So a more traditional um, infrastructure would probably be some physical tin, like an actual hardware in a company. That company would employ people to maintain that. They would maintain the servers themselves. Um, they need sort of all that resilience built in there. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of work there. So there's a lot of um, resource dedicated to keeping the servers alive. Now, what cloud is, is shifting all of that and basically taking it off your hands. So you can still use the, the resource, you can still use the computing resource to like perform work, to deploy your applications, but you don't need to buy the actual hardware. Like, you don't need that cost. You don't need to employ someone to actually look after it. You don't need that cost either. Um, you don't need to think about resilience as much. You still need to, to think about that. Um, but there's a lot of patterns which exist in these different cloud providers now. So what I see it as is it's just, it's a great enabler um, because at one point you had to have a lot of money and time invested to get these services like properly scaled up. So if you made like an app or something as a startup and it was quite successful and you had thousands, well, thousands of users isn't very much, but if you had like millions of users, then you'd start having these issues where you need to invest in all this hardware and all this resource and all these people to look after it. And that probably will have stopped quite a lot of people from going further. Whereas with a cloud service, you can just effectively rent all of that resource and you don't have any of that as a blocker anymore. So that's kind of what cloud is to me. It's an all-encompassing term though, because there's lots of things that fall underneath that umbrella of cloud computing, lots of different services. Mm-hmm. Understandable. So from a basic perspective, you just compared the traditional old school way of you have loads of hardware, you have loads of machines and servers to host and scale your application. And now we can scrap that and use the cloud to host all of our applications and manage everything all in one place without having that hassle of the hardware. Did I get the right concept there? Exactly, yeah. Awesome. So then there is a very uh, known approach called lift and shift. What that means is that you effectively transition from your traditional hardware infrastructure setup to a cloud infrastructure without having to redesign your application or the architecture or the operations around there. 
a lot of companies recur to lift and shift to be able to transition to a more digital uh, platform. Are there any challenges around doing this simple lift and shift approach? Um, yeah, you've got to be really careful when you do something like this, because the idea of the cloud is, well, the idea of certain usages, usages in the cloud is you can kind of use as much as you need, and then you can stop using it when you don't need to. So different providers have different ways of doing it, but it's called auto-scaling or elasticity. So you might have heard of like the Amazon Elastic Cloud, for example. The word elastic basically means you can scale up and down as needed. Now, what that enables you to do is save a lot of money because normal usage patterns sort of fluctuate throughout the day. So, I don't know, take Amazon for an example, like the, the online sort of shop specifically. Um, that shop probably gets very busy on Friday evenings at like 9 p.m. once people have had a bit of a drink and they start doing all their orders. <laughs> It's not going to be very busy on Saturday morning when those people are still in bed, like sleeping off the hangover or whatever. So what you have is you if you had on-prem um, hardware, it would be very difficult in that situation to say, right, I want five boxes for the morning, but in the evening I want like 50 boxes. Someone would have to like go out and drive them in on a van or something. But if you're using um, the cloud providers, then what you can do is you can like dynamically scale up and scale down. Um, so that's kind of the basis of using something like that. The problem is, is because you've got that ability, if you don't, if you don't make use of that, you might find that you're spending a lot more money than you, you should be. And it might even be comparable to on-prem on -prem hardware anyway. If you don't stop the instances from running, if you scale your system for like the, the most, um, sort of heavily used time of the day, then for the rest of the day, you're still going to be paying for all of that resource, but not actually using it. So that's an example of one of the challenges. Um, and to overcome that challenge, you need to just invest a little bit of time learning um, and researching the different architectural patterns. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think I got a clear idea on that. I was wondering if cloud is a service then that means that we have, or a, or a set of services, that means that we have cloud providers. Which cloud providers are, would you say are the biggest ones right now? And are there any differences between them or any major differences between them? Um, so yeah, this is obviously just my opinion, um, but you've got the, the classic, I think the three big ones. So you've got Google um, Cloud, you've got Amazon Web Services, um, who else have got a card? I think Microsoft's got Azure. Um, you might have people at IBM um, as well with clouds. So they're kind of like the, the big ones that you've heard of. But there's also smaller companies as well, and they all do different things. So if you're a massive corporate company who's got a very high resource um, requirement, and you've also got a lot of skilled people who are used to working at infrastructure level, then you might want to go with one of these um, these providers. If you're more of a startup and you don't have that much experience in infrastructure um, and you're mainly just an application developer, there's stuff that works for you as well, like Heroku is an example. Um, with Heroku, you can you can deploy code effectively by doing a push with Git, and that might be a bit high, um, low level, this conversation. But it's a really easy way of doing it. You don't have to manage any of the infrastructure underneath. 
And that's where you get into these different sort of labels, such as like platform as a service or infrastructure as a service or software as a service. They're all cloud, but they all do different things. Um, yeah, I can't remember what the original question was actually now, but... No, you answered it. You were basically um, oh, yeah, the around the yeah. differences and the cloud providers. And I guess as a whole, the benefit of using the cloud is much bigger from a, a future-proof and long-term vision than it would be to use the traditional... Uh, infrastructure that back in the days was our only option. I'd like to shift the conversation a bit towards architecture because you mentioned architecture. So first of all, when we speak about the architecture of a system, what do we mean by this? What is architecture? Um, that's kind of another one that is going to depend on who you ask specific specifically. But from my point of view, it's just how the thing hangs together. And you can take that as high level or low level as you want. So if you ask like a, an ops architect or something or an infrastructure architect um, to describe the architecture of a system, he's likely going to say something about how you've got a database server and an application server over here. And then you've got these different things gluing the actual the applications together. So that's a very high level view of it. If you speak to like a software architect, they might start looking at design patterns and things and saying, oh, well, we use a singleton pattern when we're designing software. So it's basically just a way of describing how different components within a system work together. But obviously, then different components are going to vary greatly. depends on the, your perspective when you're looking down at that system. So it's important to have a good architecture in place in order for your system to be maintainable, extensible, and future-proof. Some common architectures include model view controller, service-oriented architecture, and microservices. And these are just some of the common ones. There's a ton of them, I'm sure. Could you explain each one of the architects I just mentioned and in which context are they most suitable to be used in? Yeah, so model view controller is kind of, that's quite a low level pattern, I'd say, um, more of a, like a software architecture or a software design pattern compared to the other two. Service oriented architecture, SOA, is a bit more high level because it's describing the application more like as a whole, I suppose, and how it interacts with the infrastructure and the applications around it. Uh, microservice is kind of the same uh, as well. So I'll start with MVC. Now, MVC, Model View Controller, there's three main components which make up the application and how separating them out just makes it a bit cleaner and a clean application is an easy to maintain application um, and it's easy for people to work on. It's just a, it's a more pleasant experience. And you'd like to think slightly more scalable as well. So what you've got is you've got the view, and the view logic is responsible of presenting information to the user. Simple as that. So if you think about any web page, a web page is um, like a visual thing that you can look at, but it represents data. So something has got to get that data and allow the view to sort of transform it. And that's what, so the view is just basically presenting data. Um, the controller is basically the thing that takes the data and does the transformation in order to pass it to the view. And the model sits at the back and it basically is in charge of how that data gets um, sort of read off maybe disk or from a database, maybe any transformations to turn it from like the raw data into something that the, the controller could um, used to work with. So you might hear terms as well like business logic. Um, so business logic is just some sort of transformation process you could do on that data. Uh, maybe you've got 
a load of different rows in the database which represent transactions or something and you want to aggregate them together to get a report the business logic would be the rules um the aggregation logic and that would be specific to each business and each requirement which is why it's called business logic so that's a model view controller um is is that all right for that one or do you want any more information no no that sounds that sounds pretty clear i think that one is a very straightforward one so that was good so what about SOA or service-oriented architecture? It's interesting, actually, because once I've described what it is, I'll tell you how you could potentially fit it into what into a type of MVC um, architecture as well. I don't think it would be MVC anymore, so people would probably um, say it's not technically the same, but you can kind of use it in a similar way. So service-oriented architecture is where you have like a, a web service, for example, that provides um, the data and also some business logic to transform that data. And so a lot of people have probably used APIs and things. So let, let's just take a, an easy example, like an API that gives you the weather. Um, that always seems to be an example. So you you've go to the URL, www.whatever forward slash the current weather for my postcode. That then would give you back in some sort of format, might be XML, might be JSON, might be some proprietary um, language as well. It would give you back like a representation of the weather at that time. So the service oriented architecture is the fact that I've called that thing and it's given me back a payload of information. And what it does behind the scenes, I don't necessarily care about, I just care that it gives me information. What it's likely doing behind the scenes is it's taking my request, it might be transforming it, querying some sort of underlying data structure and then giving me back the response again. So that's basically service-oriented architecture. The reason I say you can kind of use it for MVC is if you think about what it's doing is SOA is giving you data. So you could replace the model in your MVC with a service. And what you'd have is like a service controller view architecture. And this is where you start getting into like single page web apps and things, which is a really common practice now. Um, I think MVC is it's not dying a death, but it's <laughs> probably less common. Yeah, it's probably less common than a single page web app. And there's technologies like Angular for that. So you'd have the actual, the view and the controller client side, but instead of the database also being client side, it would make an external call to some service somewhere else to actually get the data. So you've got your, your M split over um, sort of HTTP request now. I don't know what that architecture is called, but it's quite a common um, common architecture to see these days. Mm-hmm. Sounds interesting. So I guess it is a way to abstract specific sets of logic um, and turn them into services in essence, right? Exactly, because what you would have seen with classic MVC is you probably have had a monolithic application that lived on a server somewhere. Um, and that would have been responsible for everything. It would have been responsible for querying the database, transforming that data back, rendering a view, and then actually serving that page to the browser. Um, so your options for scaling there are quite limited because that suggests that that application actually maintains state because it's probably going to have like sessions and things stored on it. So there's, there's ways around it. You could definitely scale it. I'm not saying it's impossible, but an easier thing to do is to separate the, the data and some of the controller um, from the view and the rest of the controller. So say browser does view and controller and it just requests off the data um, to like a web, a web service or something. 
that web service can now very easily be um, stateless because all the state's held in the browser client side. So if I wanted five weather services, I could have five weather services. It's not going to affect my app. It's just going to make it faster. I could have 10. It doesn't matter. And that's where you kind of buy into all of these auto-scaling features of the cloud uh, because you can like dynamically look at the load of the web service. And when it sees that that web service, that one instance is not coping anymore, it automatically deploys two and all the way up to a, like a max bound that you set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get I get the the clear picture here with SOA. I guess, what, how does microservices deviate from that, or what's differentiating about a microservices approach and a service oriented approach? So I think effectively they're almost the same, but there are subtle differences, and I think the differences come with people's problems um, of how they've used the SOA. And it basically just makes it stricter. So a classic microservice should really only do one thing, and it should be fully in control of its own data and its own schemas. It shouldn't contain too many external dependencies. So you should be able to deploy many different versions of your microservices and have them all play nicely together. So that that's kind of the rules. There's a few more rules um, which you need to sort of look up to understand a bit better. But the problems that that tries to solve are um, if you have a load of these services and they all share like a common resource, for example, like they all share a database schema, if you upgrade that schema for a change in one of these services, this is in SOA now, then that might have a knock-on effect for all of the other services. So before you know it, one change affects the whole system. So then you have to test the whole system, and potentially have to fix bugs in the whole system. So if you've got one team who's experienced in fixing bugs in one part of the system and they've broken the other part, it is quite dangerous that they're then fixing bugs in the other part of the system because they don't have any experience in there. They don't know what they're doing right or wrong. They're just reacting to the thing they've broken. So that's just one example of something that can go wrong with like a less strict approach in service-orientated architectures. So they say to fix that, what you can do is you have each service in microservice land. Um, it, con it controls its own schema. So if you make a change, you know it's bounded in your system, in your microservice. So you don't have to then go and see if it's broken that one or broken that one. So in yeah. essence, if if we have multiple services or multiple parts of a system that are dependent on a single part of that system, that risks it being a single point of failure. So that's what I heard. I heard that if that part of the system which holds all these dependencies were to fail for some reason, everything else would, would go down that is dependent on that. And microservices is trying to solve the problem of having a single point of failure by having multiple microservices that are independent in logic. Did I get it quite right or did I miss anything here? In simpler words, um, of course. Yeah, I suppose multiple points of failure is kind of true. It's, when I say failures, I mean in, in terms of like development regressions. So if I change something that everything depends on, then it's likely I'm going to affect them. Mm -hmm. Yes, from a Whereas developer point of view. With microservices, if you're changing something that, that one service depends on, then you're not going to break everything else. Now, that's not entirely true, because what you'd normally have is this big spider's web of microservices all meshed together. So it is true that one service does depend on another service. It's just there's no like hard dependency. It's calling it via a protocol. 
So what you need to do is make sure that that protocol is safe and resilient. Um, and that's where you have things like semantic versioning, which is really important. Um, and that's basically just saying, if I've upgraded this version of a, of a microservice, is it, am I safe to keep using it or do I need to do any code changes in my microservice to, to deal with that? I see. That sounds really interesting. And he also comes across um, in, in, in your experience. It sounds like you really experienced and maybe we missed this in the beginning, but it would be interesting for you to tell us a bit more about yourself, whether that be from a career perspective or from a professional or personal perspective for those people that might not know you like I do, for example. Yeah. Um, so I'm a lead developer at the moment at a company called Fluid um, and I'm doing Java development basically. So that's my sort of expertise is the whole Java stack. Um, so anything on the JVM, um, like application deployments into WebSphere and moving towards the cloud and things like that. Um, where that kind of came from was I did a computer science degree at De Montfort. Now, I think that is a really good degree at that university because it gives you a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. So we did everything. We did like networking, Java development, C development, functional programming, Haskell. Um, it's like it gives you a really good, like a good solid framework. Um, and I think that's something that's helped kind of in my journey as well, um, from like placement student all the way to the developer. Is having you you often have to learn something new and you have to learn something new quite quickly, and having that good grounding where there's a lot of there's a lot of different sort of aspects there. It's a lot easier to learn something when you've got that than if you've just sort of you've learned Java, but that's it. It wouldn't be very easy for me to learn um, a different programming language if I didn't have that experience from uni. That's exposed me to a lot of these different areas. Interesting, and you those skills and those abil that ability is what enabled you to work hard and get to a position of lead developer in probably a record time. You you were uh, you were promoted to lead developer at the age of 25, right? 25 or 26, I can't quite remember now, but yeah, it wasn't too long after leaving uni. Yeah, that that is honestly really impressive. There's loads of people in industry that only make it to lead developer after 10 years. Uh, of being in that space so it really comes across as if you got your foundations and your grounds really well and you worked really hard for it so I'm obviously happy for you as always as a friend and as someone that is in the space um, so well done on that I would like to come back to understanding how can companies make the best decisions and make the right choices in terms of what technologies to use Right, so the most important thing on that is to understand the problem that you have. Now, that applies to lots of things these days because if you keep current with all these blogs and articles and things, and a lot of time people are saying, you need to do this, you need to use microservices because it will solve all your problems, you need to go to the cloud because it will solve all your problems. But it's like they, they introduce a lot of problems as well if you're not careful. So the most important thing for any business to do is just look at what are you trying to solve. Don't just use tech for the sake of using tech. Like, be intelligent about it. So if you've got a monolithic service that's causing you issues, just have a look at why that's causing you issues. Is it because of a single, of a single point of failure? Like, do you get lots of developers checking in code, which is breaking other code? Like, that on its own 
you don't have to move to microservices to fix that problem. You could architecture that single monolith a little bit better. You could maybe look at how people are checking in. Um, do they need to be checking in like in the way that they're doing? Do you have enough automated test coverage? Are you running your tests? There's lots of easy things you could do to kind of help the problem before dramatically re-engineering your whole system just because someone says you need to go to microservices. Equally, if you look at your problems and you're like, okay, yeah, we, we've got lots of scalability issues. Um, our monolith, we can't scale it because it's door state. There's too many things in, inside it. For example, we've got one component of this monolith that's never getting used, whereas we've got another component which needs scaling like 10 times more. That might make more sense to go to microservices because you can scale each different component in different ways. But yeah, I think what I'm saying is that you've got to really understand the problem before you make a decision. Otherwise, you'll get into dangerous situations where you're, you're going down this different route. You're getting your team to learn a different language because someone says it's going to make it faster. Whereas really, you're just spending a lot of money training everyone. They're going to learn this faster language, but it's not going to make your system any faster because your system is just architected wrong in the first place. So you need to fix that problem before you go to the new technology. So the piece of advice and the takeaway here is just because someone else is using, for example, microservices doesn't mean that you need to be doing it as well. You need to be looking at your context and understanding if that makes sense for you and if that's going to help you. Because in a lot of situations, just like you mentioned, it might be that you're backtracking instead of progressing forward. What yeah, are so the... If, sorry. If, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just say, if you're like, if you've got a system that's not been used by that many people and you're not really having scalability challenges, um, but you think you need to split it up into different components and deploy them as like what you would call a microservice because that is a good architecture to have. It's easy enough to see why people would do that, but you're basically introducing a whole load of complexity because with like just a self-contained like monolith, one repo, one deployment, you only have to put the thing at once. You make a change in there, you know where all the changes are, everything's always consistent. So there are definitely benefits. So if you don't need to have the scalability and you don't need to separate it out, then it's, why, why add that complexity for no reason? Because there there's a lot of challenges. Imagine having like going from one thing to then splitting it out, even just to five things that all talk to each other. They've got to all talk to each other for a first, first thing, put them into a cloud with auto-scaling. They're going to bounce up and down all day long. So it's like the IP addresses aren't the same anymore. Can your system handle that? Can your system handle when something stops being in this place and goes to another place. There's tools and technologies to solve that problem really easily, but it's just an example of complexity that you're adding. So you need to be really sure like that your problem needs to be solved in that approach before you go down that route and try to solve all of them complicated problems. Mm -hmm. It is context dependent and it depends on the circumstances. With that said, leaves me down to one of the very last questions, which is understanding if should companies be constantly using and transforming their business to be on the latest technology or should companies slowly progress towards that part and the question stems from a standpoint of would companies be behind on time if they're not constantly up to date if they're not constantly on the latest technology what what is the the sketch with it should companies be aiming to have the latest technology and using it at all times or not? Okay, so I think from a business point of view, my opinion would be that you should always be staying on top of what's current. 
you need to keep your business growing. You need to keep your business kind of like new and keeping up with the times so that you don't get left behind with the competition. Now, the danger is at the moment is you've got all of these really easy services, which are quite cheap now. So all these cloud providers, all these CI platforms, CD and stuff. There's a lot of startups now that can use that to really have an impact. And and just like, I don't know, you can, you can have it like one guy in his bedroom, basically, and he can scale like this massive, massive piece of software all over the world using these different cloud providers. You can have apps like go on the app store and it's just going to disrupt all this technology um, that these sort of these more, I don't know, like the legacy companies are putting out there. So it's really dangerous at the moment if you don't keep up. Mm-hmm. However, that's from a business point of view. You need to look at it from a business first point of view, not a, like a just a, a cool technology first point of view. Because it's like stuff like big data, um, AI, machine learning. If you have a business idea that would put you ahead of the game, then 100% you should then start looking to use that, that technology because that's going to grow your business and it's going to give you an advantage. But if you've got a business that's already successful and you're already innovating and already doing all those things and someone comes and says, AI is cool or machine learning is cool, like, shall we try to find a use for this? It might be a different question. Like, there might be a use that you've not thought of. So I'm not saying don't have those conversations and don't think of that because you might come up with a really innovative um, idea and it might be hugely successful. But just using it because everyone else is and it seems cool, like, that's not the way forward. I think there needs to be, like, a, a decent like a legitimate reason to use that, like an innovative um, advantage that's going to really expand your business. So again, the takeaway is to be intentional about why is there a need to do it and approach it based on the context. That sounds like really great advice and I feel like a lot of people will get great advice on how to make the right choices from a technological standpoint and from a business standpoint as well. Um, So I really, really appreciate your time today thank you for joining us on the show and before we wrap it up final question for you jamie what's up and what's next for you um so at the moment i'm gonna hopefully try to take advantage of some more spare time i've got and um work on a few personal projects but also do some um some online learning courses of some topics which i wouldn't normally um look at so from a, a tech point of view i normally like sort of the more traditional or web server, um, JVM type topics. I haven't really looked at anything like AI or machine learning at the moment, and that's a completely different tech stack. And there's so many great resources out there. Um, it would feel almost a bit of a waste if I didn't actually have a look at them at this moment. And quite a lot of them are free as well. So just give that a go and see how it goes. Sounds good. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to listen to the next podcast to find out what's up and what's next.